Amen. Well, hello, church. It is great to be here. Praise God for that worship. That was incredible. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This is our final message in the Called Out series. We're in the final chapter of this book that Paul wrote to the Church of God at Corinth. We've been here for 16 weeks, and this week is going to be awesome. We have seen all along, every step of the way, ever since we started in February, Paul has been calling out problems that are in the church at Corinth. There's been a lack of unity. They haven't been giving. There's been sexual immorality. The list goes on and on, overemphasizing certain spiritual gifts, maybe abusing their spiritual liberty that they have in Christ. So, so many things happening. But Paul, every step of the way, is calling them out in a good way because he's bringing them back to their identity in Jesus Christ. And the answer is the same answer for you and I in our problems as it was for the Corinthians. He's saying, look, you have to live in the reality of who you are in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be this way anymore because I have called you out. I have called you to a new purpose, a new goal, a new passion in life. And you can do this through the strength that he provides. And As he's doing this and wrapping up this letter in chapter 16, he actually reminds me of a time in my own life. This is when, uh, let me get this cord. Yeah, there we go. Sorry about that. It's like tied in. Uh, It was a time in my life when my parents drove me from Danville, Illinois to Greenville, South Carolina to go to college. And I remember this like as clear as day. It's not like I'm never going to talk to my parents again, right? Of course. I'm going to see them again. I'm going to have plenty of interaction with them. They're only a phone call away. But I almost felt as if my dad was looking at it kind of as a capstone to, like, his fatherhood with me. Because he couldn't just say, goodbye, I love you. He had to fit in all this other stuff as, we, as, as, as he's ready to drive away. It's like, David, work hard. Do your best. Be careful who you make your closest friends. Those people will impact you. And I didn't know at the time what, which one of those exhortations or what I needed to really hear next or what I needed to remember, but I knew my dad cared for me, and I knew that at some point I would have to fall back on those truths that he, he told me, those exhortations he told me. And just like the 18-year-old David who's standing there, myself, and I see my dad and my mom drive off, and I actually don't tell them, but I had the tears flowing down my face, and I thought, my parents love me, they care for me, he's showing me what I need to know, that's the same thing that's going on in my mind with Paul in this letter. He can't quite just tie it up and put a bow on it yet. He has a few rapid-fire, last-minute exhortations to throw out there to the Corinthians before he says, goodbye, I love you. He's going to pack in seven truths how they can be the church that God has called them to be. And we have to personalize this. We have to individualize this because you know, if you've been here in any of these weeks, that is the church here, vertical church, we are made up, we're individuals, but we're made up and we become one. We're one body, right? So as we talk about being the church that God has called us to be, individualize it, to be the Christian, be the believer, be the minister of Jesus Christ that he has called you to be. So we're in chapter 16, and the first exhortation that you see here, the first challenge, is going to be our first point. 
Number one, very simple, be giving. Look at verses one through four with me. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. All right, so let's just get this out of the way right now. Before we even really get into this one on being giving, none of this is going to resonate with you. This is going to sound hollow if you don't understand that this is dependent on a Christian who says, I want to serve Jesus. I love Jesus. My identity, my mission in life is centered around Jesus Christ. So this all begins and ends right there. As a person who's been redeemed, bought out of slavery, and has a new life in Christ. Your identity in Christ is foundational. And secondly, nothing on this list is going to be radical or profound. You've heard it all before. But the point is, Paul wouldn't be reminding the Corinthians of this. He wouldn't be giving it to us right now if it was easier said than done. Because it is a lot easier said than done. These, these truths, even though they're simple and they're basic, you've heard them all before, we have to be reminded of them. What's the only way that you will ever get excited about giving to the church or giving to other people? Have you ever thought about that? There's really only one way that you can get excited to give of your money. And since we're here, I mean, this is the text, right? So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just picking this one to talk about giving or tithe, uh, but we're here. So why do people, let's just start with this, why do people tithe? What are some of the reasons why people actually do give? Well, for some people, I think there's a few different ways that people give, but for some people, it's just, I don't want to give my money to Washington, D.C. I'd rather give it to somebody that I know that's doing a good thing than to give it to the IRS. So I will write my checks, and I will take my tax write-offs. Um, I mean, I think most of us in this room, not all of us, of course, but plenty of us in here, we're taking the standard deduction anyway. So it doesn't really matter for us. And that you can just cross that one off. But the point is, philanthropy is a good thing. Yes, a lot of people give to good causes, wonderful. And they do it just because that's the way they want to give their money. But if that's your reason for giving to a church or giving to other good causes or giving to people, it's really going to be easy to rationalize that one away over time. I don't have the money right now. I can't do this right now. Okay, that's, that's, that happens very easily. For other people, it's they just want to salve their own conscience, conscience and, and be a good person and feel better about themselves, so they give that way. That's the reason they give. But if that's the reason you're giving, you're completely missing verse 14 here coming up. You're completely missing chapter 13. You're missing the fact that you should be doing it out of love. Another, way, another reason why sometimes people give is because they just feel duty and they feel compulsed to do it. They just feel like, I have to do this, otherwise I'm not doing my job as a Christian. It's obedience, I have to. And that's like half true. Like, it is obedience to give to the church, to give to the cause of Jesus Christ. But again, all those reasons are cruel taskmasters. They're burdensome, they're dutiful, if you're doing it for those reasons. The reason that we should be giving as a church to be who we're called to be 
It's because of the gospel. It's because Jesus loved you and saved you. Back up in this text in chapter 15, look at chapter 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So there you go, right there. That's how we can get motivation. That's how we can be moved and excited and not just ready and willing to give, but thrilled to give. God has given me this. I am just blown away that he chose me when I didn't deserve it. He has radically changed my life. I want more people to feel what I'm feeling. I want more people to catch what's going on here. So I'm going to, yes, I'm going to give to the church. I'm going to give to other people. I'm going to go out of my way to show the love of Jesus Christ. And part of that, part of being who you were called to be, is to be giving. Now, our church is growing. Amazing things are happening here. I love what's happening in our church. But I have to say, as much as our church is giving, we're actually not growing in this area of giving like we should be. Like, it's not my job to know who gives what or how much people give. I, I go out of my way to not see that. But I asked our financial guy, hey, just let me know. Like, you know, we were a little down last month. What's, you know, what's going on? Like, out of our regular attenders, how many of our regular attenders are giving something? He said about half. About half of our regular attenders are giving. I would love for our church to be self-sustaining. I would love to give more to missions, right? I would love to take care of more needs that are right here in Spartanburg with our people in our church. And I'm not here to step on anybody's toes. I don't know names. I don't know figures. I don't know any of that. But I do see this biblical principle, and I don't want you not, I, it's beyond just simple, like, let's pay the bills and let's, you know, do what we need to do as a church. It's way deeper than that. I don't want you to miss out on being obedient to God, to trusting God with your finances, and finding the joy that comes in being giving, like God has called you to be. Are you surprised that Paul had to bring this up at Corinth? <laughs> at this point, I would say I would almost be surprised if he didn't have to bring this up to the Corinthians, because giving is always, I mean, they've had so many issues, right? Giving is always a reflection of your heart. You want to understand really where you're at with your relationship with God? Are you excited about giving? Because that's a huge barometer on where you're at with your relationship with God. It's an overflow of the heart. And if we're worried about our temporal, earthly needs, we're not going to be very concerned with the eternal needs that are out there. If you were worried about your car payments or your shopping budget and you give God the leftovers, the truth is you're missing the heart of what God has called you to be. 
God gives you everything that you have, and you are called to be on mission for him, and part of that is giving. Tithe is 10%. Ben talked about this already. And yeah, it's not demanded in the New Testament clearly that we have to give 10%. It's, it's really give out of the abundance of your heart. 10% is a principle that we see from the Old Testament. And I would say 10% honestly is a floor. But at the same time, there's, there's times in life where you literally have nothing and you can't even give 10%. Just give something, simple obedience. But when you are in a position where God has blessed you greatly, it's okay to give more. It doesn't even all have to go to the church. It can go to other ministries. It can go to other people. But giving is an amazing thing that you do as a heart, for in your heart, because you are enraptured with what God has done for you. I still have a ways to go on this. I really do. Uh, my wife, Julie, is honestly way more giving than me. And she's really encouraged me. And she's really pushed me in this area. So lest you think I'm like speaking from a position of like, hey, straighten up and do right. I got this figured out. I don't. I'm still working on being more giving. And it's an area of growth for me too. But that's what God has called you to be. Point number two is in verse five. This is the second thing that Paul slides in here as he's trying to wrap up this letter. Being intentional and hospitable. Look at verse five through 12. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to visit you with the other brothers, but as it was not at all his will to come now, he will come when he has the opportunity. So Paul is planning for the future here. He's in Ephesus right now. God has opened up a great door of ministry. He can't get there. But his heart is to say, hey, look, I want to come. I want to hang with you. I love you, Corinth. I know we've had some We've had some real conversation here in this letter, but I want to come actually just spend some real face-to-face -face time with you. He's in tune with the needs of those around him. Do you see that? He, he knows what's going on in their lives. And his calendar revolved around making plans to meet those needs. That's part of his mission. It's part of his joy. That's part of his purpose in life is to say, hey, they need this. Hey, I'm planning to come your way. Don't worry, I'm going to make it over to Macedonia. I'll get there. And my question for you is, is that the way you live? I can't answer that question. Only you can. This is between you and God again. But are you intentional and hospitable with your time? You may not have much money, but we all have time, right? We all have resources in the, and just ourselves that we can make available to people, to help people, and to be hospitable to people. People's, for many people, their schedules revolve around their 12-year-old sports traveling week. Or they spend more time planning their weekend beach trip getaway than they actually plan 
ministering to God's people and being actively involved in the church. So many schedules are so jam-packed with activities that we don't have time to host people, to bring people into our home. We don't even have time to invest in our neighbors who don't know Jesus. But do you see the opposite of that that Paul really has here? His whole calendar, his whole schedule is like, I see needs out there. I want to do everything I can do to meet those needs. Being intentional and hospitable. Hey, Timothy's coming. He's young. Put him at ease. Don't make him scrap around for his meals. Put this guy up. Treat him right. The church has to realize that we don't just gather on Sunday, one morning a week to worship, and then call it a day. The church is on mission seven days a week. We say this all the time. A church that just gathers on Sunday and that's it, that's just a bunch of disobedient Christians hanging out. And we don't want our church to be that way, right? We want to live in community with one another. We want to be hospitable. We want to be gracious and generous with our time. That's how you reach people. That's how you connect with people. And that's what he asked the Corinthians to do. I'm in Ephesus right now, but I'll figure out a way to come to you. Be a family church. We need each other, and we need to spend time with each other. You know where I actually see this beautifully displayed? I've been on a couple international mission trips. I went to Mexico one, once. I went to El Salvador once. And wow, what a refreshing night and day difference the church culture was in those two places. I went there, and, and I mean, the church was a family. They just bonded together. They opened their arms like, I mean, maybe it had to do with the fact that we were Americans coming in, but a lot of it had to do with just the fact that, hey, they hung out with each other, they spent time with each other, and they loved each other. And, they, and, they, and their schedules revolved around, how can I share Jesus with the lost world around me? Okay? I saw this. This was like a huge culture shock when I went from Greenville, South Carolina to Boulder, Colorado. Right? I went from a Christian liberal arts university on this campus that I lived to the most secular, Bible-hating university almost probably in the whole country, in University of Colorado in Boulder. And I mean, if you ran into a Christian out there, you didn't have to be of the same Christian tribe or the same clique of the same tribe. It's like if you ran into a Christian, there's a kindred spirit. Wow, you love Jesus? Amen. Let's, like, what can I pray for you about? Like, it was a connection that we had with those people. We got to get more like that as a church. Remember, the church exists not for us. We exist to bring glory to God. To, to, to be driven by love and to share him with the world. To do that, we have to be intentional with each other. We have to be hospitable. Another thing I would say about this is I'm not trying to say never take a vacation. Don't take me the wrong way here. I'm not trying to say go overboard on this. Of course you have to do that. I'm also saying that you're not going to go through seasons in life where you have school, you have insane work schedules that take a lot out of you. I get that. You know, we're not in the 1980s anymore where you can just get a college degree and then just step into this amazing job. <laughs> That's just not the case. I mean, my entire 20s, I feel like I was either working full-time and in college or I was working two or three jobs just to survive because I couldn't get a good job right out of college. And that's the reality of the way the world is today. Like, that's our culture right now. It is hard, and I get that. So I'm not here to 
dump some, some, some shame on you at all. I don't want you to feel that way. I'm just asking you to evaluate how you are managing your schedule. Are you doing your very best to be intentional and to be hospitable? And another thing is, this isn't just to, to uh, hammer on the millennials who have to have two jobs, and maybe you're still taking classes, maybe you're working 60 hours a week. I know there's a lot of people that aren't even here today because they have insane work schedules. I get that. But this is also for the people who are retired. Or maybe you're semi-retired. Maybe there's older ladies out there who can help younger moms. Maybe there's an older guy who can drive the bus for the youth group. To be a mature church, we need to involve everyone. And that means the older people and the more seasoned, mature Christians need to act like that and to also be involved. And our church needs to never enable that kind of behavior, but to always involve everyone. Okay? This goes for the young adults. This goes for the families that have five kids who have just an insane schedule. This goes for the empty nesters. All of us can work together on this and use the season of life that we're in to encourage and build up one another. Do you see that? Being intentional and being hospitable with your time. Let's all do that. Not being lazy or selfish but thinking how we can love each other. Now let's look at verse 13. Chapter 16 leads us to verse 13. At this point, Paul is really on a roll. He is just, this, is a, this verse is a jewel. It really is. There's four of the seven ways that we can be the church that God has called us to be right here in verse 13. I'm going to read it. Be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong. Verse 14 says, let all that you do be done in love. So this is number three, be watchful. Some translations may say be on alert or be vigilant. In the original language, in the Greek, it's just wake up. <laughs> Awake out of your slumber and just be alive, okay? Part of being who you need to be on mission for Jesus as the church means you need to be aware. All right, it's like the mom who has her little three-year-old at the zoo, and you know your little kid likes to run off, so you got the eagle eye on them, right? You're not going to let them out of your sight. This is like being a defensive driver. You're, a, or you're aware and you're alert of the, of the things that can hit you and come at you from any direction in this, in this world. Right? I mean, you've got drivers out there. I've been one of them before in the past, before I was married with kids. I was a terrible driver. Let me just be honest. I mean, I'm doing those two to three jobs. I'm changing my clothes to go to, from one job to the other. you got people eating their monsoon noodle house. they got people texting and driving. It's, you got to be alert when you're on the road, right? you got to check your mirrors. you got to have both hands on the right position on the wheel. You should have that. You should be a defensive driver because you don't know what's going to come at you. That's being watchful, and that's the idea that we see as a Christian. Being who you need to be means you need to be aware that we live in a dark world with wicked people. We're going to be tempted. We're going to be tried. People are going to come at you and attack you. If you start living for Jesus and sacrificing for Jesus with your time and, your, and you're being hospitable, do you realize you will face the enemy at that point? It's coming. It's coming. So be watchful. Be a defensive driver. That's the way you have to be spiritually. So 
Who are my kids' closest friends? What are my entertainment choices doing to my mindset? How am I taking care of my body? All of these are little things, but they're little things that add up. They add up. So be watchful for that. The second one is stand firm. The second thing you see from verse, verse 13, and this is point number four, stand firm. Paul elaborates on this exact word in Philippians 1.27. Remember the context of what we're in. Paul can't quite say goodbye, I love you. Before the I love you, he has to just fit in all this stuff. So he's not elaborating on any of this. But the same word that he says here, he elaborates on in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what it looks like. And when we were in Philippians, when we did that series, we were talking about like the Roman soldier who had those shoes, right? They were not target women's sandals. They were actually like Roman soldier shoes that had really solid traction and tread so that they could like plant themselves. And when they like have the barbarians coming at them, they could put their shields up and they could stand firm. That's the idea that Paul says you have to have with your faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel never changes. You have to trust the Bible over your experiences, which can be manipulated, over your feelings, over your emotions. All these things change. We change. But Jesus holds this world together by the word of his power. And we have to trust in his words. Don't compromise the truth of God's word just because your friend who is celebrating a completely different lifestyle or your neighbor who is on a different mindset and they have a different identity that they don't see the truth of the gospel. We know better. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you know better. You have a relationship with him. You can't let the world system that doesn't know God paint the narrative. We can't allow that to happen. We have to plant our flag on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And stand firm in him. He is the firm foundation. Number five, verse 13, I'm going to say be brave. Be brave. You may see there in your translation, I don't know what you say, it says for you, but it, it might say, is the ESV says, acts like men. Okay? Now, this is a very unique New Testament word. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it for you because I'll butcher it. But this word is only found in the New Testament in one place. And it's right here in verse 13, okay? It's translated act like men because the idea is to be the church you need to be, no soldier in the army of Jesus may be faint-hearted. It's a, it's a, it's a once-in-a-scripture Greek word, and it literally means being on mission for Jesus has no place for cowards. So the idea is to act like a man, all right? Step up. I have two boys. We have a little girl who's eight months old. Amazing. Um, she is so sweet. But our two boys, Beckham and Paxton, are both awesome little guys. They're totally different. Beckham is really start, smart. He's really emotional. Paxton is a jokester. He's just a big ham, and he's also kind of a punk. Um, those are our two boys. But both of them, you can motivate them easily by using the same word, okay? like, hey, hey, 
hey, don't cry. You're not a little boy anymore. You're a big boy now, right? Step it up. You can do this. If you start using that motivation, I mean, they just, they just like hold back the tears like, yes, I'm going to be a big boy, Dad. I've fallen on my bike for an hour straight, but I want to learn this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be tough. I'm going to toughen up. That's what you're doing, right? I mean, when they're older, it's going to be like, be a man. This guy on the football field may be bigger than you, but be a man. You can, you can handle him, right? That's the idea that Paul has here, but it's not just written to men. Please don't confuse that. This is written to the whole church. So this is written to men, women, and children. And this is the idea. Be brave. Step up. You don't have to be cowardly. You don't have to fear. You can actually be who God has called you to be and be brave for him. He's got you. So I know the testosterone level is kind of high right now in the room. We've been talking about being brave, being a man, sucking it up. But uh, this next one that Paul gives us is the motivation and it's the enabling power behind this. Because a lot of people will abuse this idea in the church. Be brave, be a man. This ultra machoism that's just not found in scripture. And the next phrase that you see can also be a little confusing if you don't actually look at the context. Because the next phrase is, act like men, be strong. But number six here, number six is to rely on the strength that Christ provides. So how have I gotten that point to rely on the strength that Christ provides from those two words, be strong? You would think of all my points, <laughs> be giving, be intentional, hospitable. Why didn't I just say be strong? Well, the idea here is be strong is in the passive voice. It's a very important thing that you can overlook if you're not looking closely. But this is saying that to be a Christian who is bold and fearless, it all hinges on this concept. It's this imperative, passive voice to be strong, to be strengthened by an outside source. And you are the passive recipient of the strength that Jesus Christ provides. That's how we're strong. I know this is like, I know this is like not super popular to hear, and this isn't even really that, that common to hear because a lot of times we just hear, you know, suck it up and do right. And you hear that sometimes from the pulpit, sometimes you hear that in homes, but you don't see that in scripture. You just don't. It's what we see in scripture is that you can be made strong through Jesus Christ. And that's why this is in the passive voice. It's because our strength doesn't come from us gritting our teeth and being an American cowboy with our grit and determination. We can do it. It doesn't come that way. It's not this false sense of machoism. Our strength comes from Jesus Christ. That's the Bible. Ephesians 6.10, I'm going to show you a couple verses. You'll never see pull yourself up from your own bootstraps in Scripture. This is what you see instead. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. 2 Timothy 2.1, it says this. You then, my child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Isn't that reassuring? Isn't that comforting? 
We don't have to do it all because maybe you're thinking, David, I can't be brave. I don't have a brave bone in my body. I just can't do this. This is not me. I'm not one of those people who like to just be strong. I mean, some of us are, some of us aren't. Your strength comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. This is very misunderstood, but the key to being strong men and women is to see yourself as who you really are. Your identity in Jesus Christ makes you strong. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says this, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more, and I will glory of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may be on me. There is a lot of Christian worldview, a lot of Christian talk and books and conversation that misses this completely. I'm not going to quote any names here, but I'm going to read you a, a small excerpt from a Christian women's book. Super popular. It's got some truth in here, but it misses this point completely. Like, just look at this. Know this one great truth. You are in control of your own life. You get one and only one chance to live, and life is passing you by. Stop beating yourself up. And dang it, stop letting others do it too. Stop accepting less than you deserve. Stop buying things that you can't afford to impress people you don't even really like. Stop eating your feelings instead of working through them. Stop buying your kids love with food or toys or friendship because it's easier than parenting. Stop abusing your body and your mind. Stop. Just get off the never-ending track. Now, as I said, some of that is right. Those are true postures to take. But do you see how the emphasis there is buckle up? straighten up, do right. You have the power to control your own life. When that's not the message we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is, on our own, without Jesus, we are weak. And our mindset has to be, Jesus, fill me with your power. Jesus, I can't do this on my own. Please strengthen me, Jesus. And that's how you will be the church that God has called you to be. Victory through Jesus Christ, relying on the power that he provides. All right, number seven. We're flying through these. This is the seventh way, the seventh exhortation that Paul slides in here before he wraps up this book. It's support your leaders. Verse 15 through 18. Now I urge you, brothers... You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such of these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaeus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to these people. Maybe you noticed that we skipped verse 14. Don't worry, we're coming back to verse 14. Once again, our motivation and our power right there in verse 14. But this is the last thing Paul brings up. You need to support and give recognition to those people who are your spiritual leaders. Thank them. Appreciate them. You know, I've been a youth pastor before. I tell you, there's not many more thankless jobs in the world than being a youth pastor. You know, you, uh, <laughs> you drive a... 15-passenger van full of junior hires to an all-nighter. You know, you drink Mountain Dew and you eat pizza all night in the trampoline park. 
And then one little seventh grade girl gets left out of the conversation on the way back, and, and mom has, wants to take your head off. Like, that's the life of being a youth pastor. And when you're serving other people in the church, it doesn't matter if you're a pastor, you're a worship leader, you're on the worship team, you're in the nursery, you're serving. Do you realize it can be a thankless job sometimes? People can look at you and they can just look at anything that didn't go perfectly right and they can be upset. And sometimes it's the people we're sacrificing for, the people that we're trying to serve that can be the hardest to deal with. And in those times, you have to realize I'm not doing I do it because I love you. I'm serving you because I love you, but I'm not serving it so that I can get you to appreciate me. I'm doing it because I love Jesus and he's called me to this. And as a church, to be the church that we're called to be, we all need to be encouraging and supporting of the leaders that God has in your life. It's not easy to be a pastor. It's not easy to be a pastor's wife. It's not easy to do anything for the Lord. Because if you put yourself out there and serve in the nursery, serve in the parking lot, serve in the welcome team, come in early to help set up things, you're going to have, you're making sacrifices, and it's not always easy. But Paul says to support your leaders. I get to say this today because it's in the text, but yes, love your leaders and support them. We just covered a lot of ground. Paul has hit seven specific ways that you can be who you are called to be. And look how he ends it. Verse 19. Verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And I, Paul, write these greetings with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's how he ends the book. You see why we dismiss and we walk out every single time with you, our love? That's how Paul ends this. In this whole thing, the entire book, the entire message, everything you are in Christ trying to live on mission for him, to be who you were called to be, to be the best version of yourself, it goes back to verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. It's that simple. If we love Jesus because we see what he's done for us, we're going to love other people. And if we are enraptured and just filled with the fact that he chose us and saved us and gave us a mission and a vision that's greater than ourselves, and his plan for us is greater than our pain, we are going to be able to do things out of love, because love will be coming out of our minds. It'll be coming out of our bodies. It'll be coming out of our actions. Love is the key. It flows from a loving relationship with God. Last week when we were talking about love in chapter 13, we were talking about affection and truth. Having both of those things. When I'm parenting, when you're dealing with a coworker, you have to have both. And it's really easy to just look at my son who is disobeying for the 10th time in a row and just say, stop it, stop, and just come down harsh. 
But the importance, the important thing is to do it out of love and to have the affection and the truth and to explain why and to put your arm around them and to say, hey, I love you because Jesus loved me first. And to be who you're called to be, you have to do everything out of love. That's the way we love other people because Jesus loved us. Let's stand up right now. We're going to close with a song that we've started singing in this series, Building Our Lives on Jesus Christ. Let's sing out to him. Let's praise him right now.